made Costco like 45 minutes longer than normal uh, or always a lot longer than scheduled. So, uh, you know, if any of you were flagging at the end of, of the last class, uh, for which I certainly couldn't blame you, um, I wanted to sort of review a little bit and, and just sort of review the the concepts, the things, the ideas that were sort of floating around that we were that we were observing uh, sort of as we continue to sort of put them together and see not just the pattern that they make, but the way that that pattern changes over time and, and sort of help us to move towards the end here. Okay. Um, uh, now, remember that the sort of the focal point of the three chapters we did last time was Ender being trapped at the end of the world, right? We started with the giant's drink and then we were looking at the room at the end of the world. Um, those two scenes from the fantasy game um, were really, I think, really sort of the center of that whole portion of the story. Um, there's a there's a sense in which, I think, you know, you can sort of say, you know, on the one hand, obviously, the action of, you know, Ender in his launch group and in his, uh, uh, and, you know, with, with the armies, with Salamander and Rat Army there at the beginning uh, last time, you could say, you know, that's obviously the real action, and the fantasy game sequences are, you know, some people might perhaps view them as as sort of digressions. I certainly don't think they are, um, but uh, but anyway, they, you know, they, they certainly are, are sort of they're extras, right? They're they're the sidelights. But the more, you know, the more we were talking about, it, the more I was thinking that through last time, the less that seemed to be the case. That to me, it seemed like um, in those in those three chapters we looked at last time. The fantasy game scenes were where the real action was, and the rest of the story, um, not only things like uh, Colonel Graf's visit to Valentine, but, um, but uh, you know, all of Ender's activity with Salamander Army and Rat Army were themselves like the sideline, uh, were themselves almost like a kind of commentary upon, you know, they sort of provided us with the, 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 the clues that we needed um, to try to begin to try to understand and piece together what was really important, which is what's going on in the fantasy game. Um, so, anyways, we had Ender trapped in that room at the end of the world, and you remember the primary elements of that. We have uh, the rug, which unwound itself into a snake, which the first time he goes there addresses Ender and says that his name is Death, the snake, that he's the only escape. Um, and Ender, of course, his standard procedure was to stomp on the head of the snake before it could attack him, um, grind the head of the snake until the snake was dead, and but then he was stuck, and there was that mirror there in which Peter's face, remember, not Peter's face as Ender remembered him, but Peter's face as it was on Earth at that time, changed and different with a new haircut that Ender wouldn't have known, that Ender wouldn't have recognized. So it's Peter, contemporary Peter, that he sees in the mirror, and Peter's image in the mirror has the tail of a snake hanging out of his mouth, blood dripping down his chin, and Ender can't do anything. Everything he tries to do, he throws the dead snake, he tries to pry the mirror off the wall, results in his horrid death, kind of like the horrid and, and, uh, and gruesome deaths of uh, the, you know, his mouse character when he was putting his head into the cups, the bucket-sized cups offered to him. Um, by uh, um, by the giant earlier on. Um, so, you know, of course, we were thinking about and talking about a little bit the, the obvious connection with Peter. The, you know, him seeing Peter in the mirror seems to have... There, there are some 
cues which seem kind of obvious, right? I mean, that, that is, it, there seems, on the one hand, to be a pretty readily um, obvious interpretation to put on that. And, and I say that in particular because it seems to be the interpretation that the people in the story put on it, right? We have Ender, of course, who's encountering the game, but of course we also have Colonel Graff who's watching Ender in the game very carefully. Um, so he's seeing all of these things too. Um, and the fact that it's Peter in the mirror, um, some people were asking last time some comments that I didn't get to. You know, does Peter being in the mirror, would that actually imply that Ender is the opposite of Peter? You know, you get the, of Peter, you get the whole mirror reverse thing. Um, and I don't think so, at least perhaps that could be a kind of a that could be a kind of a subtext but it does not that that certainly doesn't seem to me as like the obvious link right i mean when 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 you look in the mirror what do you expect to see yourself right you expect to see your own image so if in place of his own image he sees peter what that would seem to imply is an identity between himself and peter right he looks in the mirror and what does he see he sees peter and not only does he see peter but he sees peter in sort of monstrous pose right you know you have the you know the cruelty um, and this this sort of brooding evil of Peter, um, apparently represented by the fact that he has eaten the snake. You know, it's like the most inhuman way to approach the snake issue. Ender comes up and stomps his heel on the head of the snake, which is you know a sufficiently violent way to uh, to handle the situation, but it's at least still a human versus snake scenario, right? I'm going to pick up the snake and swallow it, you know, and, and eat it. People don't do that. Normal people don't do that, right? So again, you have that, that sense of Peter as inhuman, Peter as monster, and that that seems to be the room at the end of the world. The computer would appear to be inviting him to identify himself with Peter. Again, you know, one of the questions we were asking last time, what is the computer trying to tell him? What is the program? You know, what, what, what message is it trying to give him? What is it trying to teach him? We're, we're told this is supposed to be a teaching program. Well, um, it would seem to be say, saying to Ender, look in the mirror, my friend, congratulations, you are Peter, and you are Peter at his most inhuman and most monstrous. This seems to be Graf's interpretation, right? That's why we get that conversation with him in Major Imbu, where he's like, what the heck? What on earth is this computer doing? Why is it showing him? Do you realize what this is going to mean to Ender? So it, it, Colonel Graf is flipping out because he does not want the computer to give him that message by which we seem to be, I think, pretty safely able to draw the conclusion that that's the message, that's how he interprets it, right? That's, that's the message that he takes out of it. That, of course, is confirmed when he goes down to Earth and talks to Valentine, and what he's trying to get from Valentine, and ultimately what he gets her to do, is to write a letter to Ender reassuring him, you're not Peter, right? To try to counteract that connection, which apparently the computer has invited him to do. So this opens up, you know, this sort of, this, this, or rather doesn't open it up, it really brings to the surface, really emphasizes at this point in the story, that fundamental question. And it's a question that we've seen Ender have of himself several times before. How different is he from Peter, right? I mean, we know that Peter, Peter, um, what's the phrase that Colonel Graff uses? He calls Peter one of the most dominant influences in Ender's life, right? Um, and we can see that, right? I mean, if you, you know, as we're going along and we're following the mind of Ender, you know, and we're hearing his own internal thoughts, remember, like, he still has a monitor on that we're using, right? So we're like Colonel Graff, not looking over Ender's shoulder, but hearing what's inside his head. Anyway, um, 
So uh, we have, we see what's going on in Ender's mind, and we see how often Peter comes up. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's clear that Peter is a kind of standard that he appeals to all the time, right? I mean, that's it's it's one of the things that he always comes back to. Um, uh, you know, he does something that makes him upset, and he's like, "I'm just like Peter," right? Um, or he thinks, uh, you know, when uh, uh, when Bonzo hits him, and you know, he is glad that he can take a beating without, you know, crying and carrying on and everything. And he says, "You know, I thank you, Peter, for giving me this gift." Um, anyway, I, there's um, uh, there's Lots of ways in which we can see Peter looming very large uh, in Ender's mind. And then again, this connection is really sort of foisted on us here at the end. But of course, P Ender's not like Peter, right? Um, we know he was selected because of his differences from Peter, right? Peter was rejected from battle school because of, apparently, um, what I've been calling his inhumanity, um, because he was too cruel, because he was too violent. Um, Ender is not like Peter, and therefore has been accepted, right? And that's Valentine's whole message. He's not at all, he's nothing like Peter. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I, I it sh doesn't it sure sound like Valentine is trying to convince herself at the end? Um, you know, the, the extreme language that she uses. It's one thing to say, Ender isn't really the same as Peter. They kind of look alike in some ways. There are certain ways in which their actions are sort of similar, but... Uh, but they're they're not they're not exactly the same. That's a safe thing to say, or at least you know you can sure make an argument about that. But to say what Valentine was saying at the end, you're not at all, not even a tiny little bit. He's nothing, nothing like Peter. Mm, not true. It's not true at all that he's nothing like Peter. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so. But again, that that's a you know very much a question that the this the last section that we were talking about um, really really invites us uh, to be asking really really invites us to look at. Um, and let me pause here and look at some of the uh, some of the the questions. Yeah, April um, April Harvard makes a really good has really good questions. It seems like Peter thinking of the Peter in the mirror there that Peter is eating Valentine in a way. Remember the snake when Ender does kiss it there. At the end of chapter nine, it turns into Valentine, right? And Ender makes that link too. He's right; it can't be Valentine. And he thinks back to all the times he's killed the snake, and he's like, "It's like he dissociates himself from that idea. He is wait. He 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 cannot allow himself to think that the snake is Valentine because he thinks back over how many times he killed the snake, right? Um, so uh, so yeah, uh, you know, April. That um, on the one hand, we're kind of invited to think that way. And yet again, Ender sort of shuts that off, right? But anyway, uh, seems like Peter's eating Valentine in a way. If the game can access Peter's current picture, does the computer know about their online activities? It's a great question, April. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you'd think no, but who knows? I mean, um, in a sense, I think, the most mysterious character in this entire book is the computer that's generating the fantasy game, April, as far as having explanations for how it knows what it knows and what it's doing. Um, I don't have an answer for that, and the book doesn't give an answer for that. Remember, Major Imbu does not have uh, any good answers for this. Um, but, 
but it is a really good question. And of course, you know, April, you're right. Um, it's one of the other things that we know that Ender doesn't know um, that Valentine has become Peter's tool, right? He, she has become his instrument. Um, that, you know, that moment when Valentine is crying and saying that Ender didn't give in, right? He didn't give in to Peter. He didn't give in to being like Peter. Um, and it's clear that she herself is feeling guilty because she feels like she has given in, right? That she has sold out. That she has changed her allegiance from being Ender's protector against Peter, and now she's helping Peter and supporting Peter and working with Peter. And she feels like by doing so, she's betrayed Ender, and she's sold out. Um, so, April, I think that we are invited um, to sort of interpret it that way, that we can see sort of Valentine disappearing into Peter. But notice also how, how different that is, right? That is, it's not Valentine looking and seeing Peter, right? In a sense, in a sense, there's a kind of triumph in that. Remember, again, what she defined as victory was not giving in, right? And you could say, even if she's the snake and Peter's eaten her, um, she's not become Peter, right? To be his victim, to be consumed by him, um, uh, to be uh, to be you know, taken in and made his tool, that, is not to give in completely. That is to say, it's not to change. She's not looking in a mirror and seeing Peter, right? She still remains, even in that mirror image, she remains different from him. Um, victimized by him. I mean, I'm not saying it's cheerful, uh, but it's not transformation, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think there's certainly a lot more that we could do with that. Um, but, uh, but here, let's see. Because you guys have lots of comments tonight. Um, oh, this is great. Let's see. Yes, and Tom, Tom Hillman makes a really great point. Again, thinking back to the computer there. Um, how this whole process, the process of, uh, especially with the revelation of the picture of Peter, how this shows that the computer program is not entirely under the control of the controllers. And that's right. You know, Tom, in some sense, I think the computer program, you know, the computer which is making the fantasy game um, is one of the only, no, is the only um, character in the book which lies genuinely outside the struggle. You know, you've got the struggle between the individual and humanity, the struggles between humans and monsters, and those things are true in several different ways, right? We talk about, you know, humanity in the sense of the collective, the whole of humanity on the one hand versus individuals on the other hand. Um, between hu humanity in the sense of humaneness, you know, the um, the sort of the, 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 the attitude of being like a human instead of being monstrous. Um, this, so this, the, the struggle between humanity and monsters. This, of course, playing out on the uh, you know on the, on the most literal and historical level, as you know, in the in the wars with the buggers. You know, you've got the astronauts and the buggers and astronauts thing, right? You've got the monsters on the one hand and the people over there. <clears throat> but we were already looking in the first class about the ways in which that struggle and that conception of the struggle, that defining humanity by that struggle, the desire to defend humanity against the buggers, has already succeeded in a very significant dehumanizing effect, right? So you have 
<clears throat> the human race as a whole um, sort of giving in to this really rampant cruelty, you know, that like, oh, by all means let's encourage young children to use weapons and um, let's, you know, uh, uh, encourage people to play these, in the end, really sadistic games. I mean, they, they sort of acknowledge, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty poor sport to be the kid who has to pretend to be the bugger because the kids who are being the astronauts are encouraged not just to defeat you, but to be cruel to you. Um, so again, we've got whole humanity and, 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 and monster thing going on. You've got the soldiers and the teachers in battle school. You've got the humans and the buggers. There are so many different, you know, sort of tensions and conflicts and, and, and things being worked out. But the computer... The fantasy game computer is the one thing which seems to be totally separate from that, which does not seem to have a stake in that game at all, um, in any of those tensions, in any of those conflicts. Um, so in that way, Tom, I find um, I find it really fascinating. It's, it's almost like it is the one objective thing. And I think in a sense, because of that, um, and, and Tom in particular, because of that scene in which Graf is completely wigging out about what the computer has done, and Major Imbu is like, look, you know, who knows? We can't really control it. I, that's one of the reasons why I really love those scenes, actually, um, because I think it gives them a kind of richness. Because, again, the computer, it's like the computer is the only objective creature, you know, in, uh, in, in the story. And I think that that really adds a, a, a fascinating element. Um, yeah. Okay, let's see. Um, good, let's see. Sorry, I'm again sort of scanning through people's comments here. I know I can't. I'm sorry that I don't have time to respond uh, uh, to everyone's comments. But we have a lot of people here with us, and you guys are being especially active tonight. It's just that it's great, but uh, uh, hard to keep up with. Um, yeah, Megan asks, maybe acknowledging your inner monster makes you less monstrous. Uh, is this why Ender has to kiss the snake? Megan, a great question. I mean, the kissing of the snake there at the end of that scene, in, at the end of Chapter 9, is, um, is a real moment. What does it mean, exactly? That is, since, on the one hand, his the shift in his approach from immediate violence to... Um, kindness, right, gentleness, even acceptance, is clearly a reversal in policy and would seem to be a choice of humanity as against monstrousness, right? I'm not going to be the thing that just goes in and stomps on heads right away. Instead, I'm going to be the thing which tries to embrace and understand and kiss, right? Um, though remember, we're told that Ender didn't plan to do that, right? The kissing wasn't a strategy. Um, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He was going to let it... There were two other things mentioned, right? He had originally intended to just let it bite him, that it was, in fact, a suicidal impulse, in a sense. Um, but also, he was also thinking, oh, or maybe he would eat it, right? Um, those would be two extreme reactions, right? I'm not going to keep doing this. I'm not going to go in and stomp on the snake and see Peter in the mirror. Right? I'm going to break out of this whole, I am truly Peter, you know, I am in fact like Peter, I am that kind of an inhuman monster. I'm going to break out of that cycle. He's got two ways to break out. Right? Um, one is to 
give himself up, right? Um, to allow himself to be destroyed, um, to say, I'm not going to resist. Um, in which case, he would be dead, but not a monster. Um, or the other is to embrace being a monster, right? To say, okay, that's me, right? That Peter with the snake hanging out of his mouth is me? Fine, I'll eat the snake, right? I'll, 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 I'll make myself, I'll eat the snake and I'll grow out my hair and I'll be just like Peter, right? I didn't say a thing about growing out his hair, but, um, but anyway, so, I, so those seem to be two almost diametrically opposed responses, though both of them designed to break the pattern, right? To break the way that he had always approached this room. And in the end, he ends up doing spontaneously, without plan, without design, a third thing, which is to, to kiss the snake, to embrace it. So again, that would seem to be clearly, it's obviously a change in policy, but the symbolism of it seems to be a little bit clouded. That is, it's not cut and dry. Um, it's because it's a snake. And it's a snake, what's more, which has identified itself as death, since it's a snake and death that he's cuddling up to um, and kissing there at the end, um, that it's no longer just a clean cut, I'm going to turn from violence and turn towards love and acceptance instead. It's not just that, right? Just, okay, love and acceptance of death? Really? Like that? Okay. Um, that's, again, it's, it's, it's symbolically... It seems not really clear-cut. Um, and then it's, of course, further complicated when the snake turns into Valentine. Valentine, snake, death, you know, how does that work? It's, that, that's not really clear to me. Um, and I don't think it's clear to Ender either. Um, but um, anyway, we'll, we'll look at some more of this stuff as we, uh, as we go here. I, I do want to get to today's class content sometime before we're... <laughs> <laughs> We're almost, almost though not quite at the halfway point of the class today, and I've yet to do slide one. I think my uh, my old tendencies are coming back with a vengeance to uh, uh, to try to humble me for my uh, 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 my cockiness after I got through my unprecedented twenty one slides last time. Um, okay, um, let's see. Sorry, just looking ahead in comments here. Right, I'm going to have to skip ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. Sean Smith says, uh, you know, Sean, you said the question that I just end with really well. Um, is embracing the part of himself that he hates, you know, how is that different from becoming a monster? Exactly, exactly. Um, is, it, is it, you know, kissing the snake? Does that mean... I'm distancing myself from monstrosity, right? Um, I'm not going to st stomp on the snake and then be like Peter, or is it embracing it? I guess symbolically, it could work either way. Um, and uh, and that seems... Uh, it's one of the things that makes that situation really... That, that whole scene there uh, at the end of Chapter 9 really complicated and hard to sort out. So again, what I want to do is turn back to the rest of the action outside the game um, to help us, you know, as a, as, a, as a kind of commentary, in a sense. Because, uh, you know, it's really all the whole point of the rest of the action is that it's just a kind of commentary on the fantasy game, which is obviously the central point of the whole story. Um, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic there, but 
Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, all right, uh, just a couple other things that I wanted to mention because they lead into where I want to start uh, today because we're totally going to start today's class pretty soon. We're almost ready to begin. Um, remember Dink's warning? Right, that conversation he has with Dink Meeker when Dink says, uh, "Remember the teachers are the enemy." Right? It's not. It's this. 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 This isn't about the buggers. It's about us versus the teachers. Um, in that conversation, remember Ender revealed the fact that he's like okay with being a tool because he thinks that the end is worth it. It's like a means and ends question. The end of protecting humanity from the buggers is worth my own sacrifice of selfhood, right? So I will submit myself to become a tool to be made a good soldier in order to help humanity defeat the buggers. And Dink questions that. Um, you're not being the tool of humanity as a whole, right? You are not saving the, hum the humans from the buggers. Instead, you are being a tool for the fleet, right? That this is, this is uh, the real situation at least the situation that that Dink fears, and as we will see, uh, you know, in the by the end of the book, fears with with some reason, is that in the end, what could happen is the game room made real. That is, uh, you know, these people who are, you know, like the 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 pop, You know, you have the battle school as a kind of uh, microcosm of the earth, right? You know, these. Uh, these soldiers and people from different countries and from different backgrounds who are brought together and who, um, you know, have a lot in common. They're set against each other, right? And they're they're sort of with artificial definitions, you know, that are imposed upon them. They are set against each other and made to war against each other. And remember, Dink is the one who says, you know, we're we're, we're not the enemy. It's not the other students who are the enemy. It's the teachers who are the enemy, and the fleet is manipulating us. Um, the fleet is perpetuating this stuff about the bugger war because they want to maintain their power, and they know that if they don't, it, once the bugger war is over, things are going to split up, and you uh, uh, and you're going to end up having the you know people just as you know uh, uh, Dink and Ender are one day going to be enemies in the battle room, leading commanding different armies. Um, so too they could be commanding you know real armies uh, on Earth as civil war breaks out. Um, you know this is the situation that Dink is. So again, the, the the point that Dink makes is it's not as simple as all of humanity unified against the buggers, right? So you've got you've got all of humanity in this category, and you're going to be a tool to save everybody to save this thing called humanity, right? This abstraction called the human race. Um, and Dink says, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about the human race. Um, there isn't anybody who represents humanity. Everybody represents a portion of humanity. And as he points out, the teachers are representing the fleet. The, the fleet. They're representing America, and they're representing themselves. Um, they're not the spokespeople of the human race. Um, so we're thinking that conversation with Dink sort of invites us to uh, um, to question that, to sort of think about that. And we'll come back to that um, later on tonight. Um, we saw Ender's despair and his uh, his dehumanization, his own sense of his dehumanization, um, as he's becoming a tool. We see that despair deepen when Val. 
becomes a tool, when Valentine becomes a tool, um, when she is made by the teachers to write that letter, he reads the letter, he knows it's from Valentine, but the very genuineness of that letter makes it worse, right? Um, he hates it because he knows she has given in, right, to use her own language. She's sold out. Um, she has submitted to become a tool of the teachers against him. That's how he sees it. The teachers are the enemy, right? Dink taught him that. The teachers are the enemy, and he recognizes, yes, it's true, the teachers are the enemy. Um, and Valentine has become their tool. Not the tool of humanity as a whole. Again, that's the appeal that Graf makes to her as well. Not the tool of humanity as a whole. The, the tool of some people against other people. And in this case, against Ender himself. Um, so remember his reaction to this? He's not going to play anymore. Right? Forget it. Forget it. He's not going to be the, their tool anymore. So, he's gonna, he, so he, was, he was content to be their tool. Um, he thought it was, it was a worthwhile it was a sacrifice, but a worthwhile sacrifice for him to become their tool. Now he's not going to play anymore. Except he does. Right? Um, in playing the fantasy game. He's playing their game. Um, it's not his game. It's not Ender's game. It's their game. Except, as you know, Tom, as you were just pointing out, it's not the teacher's game either. The game is, is that game, the fantasy game, is on its own, right? It's sort of operating independently. Um, but um, anyway, he does continue, in fact, playing it. Remember we were looking at, you know, when he was thinking that way back with the, with the giant's drink, right? He's like, forget it, I'm not going to play anymore. Except he does, he can't get himself to stop. It's a like, stupid game. Keeps doing the same thing every time. Um, but yet he can't stop himself from going back and going back and going back. He's got to finish the game. He's got to defeat the game. He's got to win. Um, okay. We're told. I am now officially starting our discussion of Chapter 10. You see? Okay. We're told that Ender is happy, or at least content, after his solving of the puzzle of the room at the end of the world, and that he hasn't played the fantasy game since that day, since the end of Chapter 9. So we get no fantasy game scenes whatsoever in, uh, uh, in the, 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 the chapters that we that we read for today, chapters 10 through 12. Um, so, okay. What, then, does going through the mirror mean to him? In one way, it's a little hard to understand exactly why Ender seems to feel better after this. Because, and again, Graf thinks he understands it. And, and we see that at the very end of chapter 9 when, when Valentine gets her medal. Right, or is notified that she's going to get a medal, that she doesn't actually receive a medal and has to destroy the letter and can't tell anybody about it. But, um, but anyway, she's told she's going to receive this medal, um, that her assistance was great and it did exempt. It cured it. Her letter cured Ender. So it seems Graf believes he understands the situation, right? He believes Ender's problem was the whole mirror, Peter in the mirror thing, that he thought the computer was telling him that he was Peter and he couldn't handle that. So... Graf had the clever plan to go get Valentine to sort of trump that impulse, right? That Valentine's influence over Ender is even more profound than Peter's impact over Ender. So if, if he has Valentine once again to tell him, as she always told him when he was little, you're not like Peter, that the voice of Valentine saying that will counteract 
the fears and self-doubt that has been uh, brought up by, you know, the game and the Peter and the Mirror thing, and and it works, right? She, he gets the letter. As soon as he gets the letter, he goes and he plays the game, and he gets past the room, and he's not looking at Peter and the Mirror, and he's not... And he, and he gets comes out of his despair, and he uh, becomes happy and content, right? So, okay, so Graf, everything worked out according to Graf's plan, except we know it didn't. Right? We know that Ender's reaction to Valentine's letter was not reassurance, but a deeper and more profound despair that the only good thing he still had to cling on to had been taken away from him. Valentine himself, herself had sold out and become an instrument of his enemies against him. That was the spirit with which he went to the room at the end of the world that last time. So it seems pretty obvious to me that Colonel Graf's conclusion is way overly simplistic. Um, that that's not, in fact, how it worked. Um, April Harvard asks a really good question again. Is Ender rejecting the teacher's interference in his one good memory um, by accepting that Valentine is with him wherever he goes? Remember, that's that's the thought that he left with, that he left the room at the end of the world. When he goes through the mirror and he's got Valentine, he and Valentine are there, dragon and unicorn, right, are there, um, uh, and he feels happy because he feels that Valentine will always be with him. There is a sense, April, in which it seems almost as if he has reclaimed his memory of, um, of Valentine from them. I mean, the, 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 the turn in how he is thinking about Valentine there at the end of that scene, compared to what it was before he went in, um, is pretty striking. It seems to have had a transform. What happened in that room, in that fantasy room, um, at the end of the world, does seem to... Um, does seem to change his mind. It changed the way that he looks at Valentine and at his situation. Contentment came from it. How? Why? What does going through the mirror mean to him exactly? Um, because it's certainly not simply he used to be confronted by Peter, but now not right. Where that image of Peter, you are a Peter-like monster, Ender, where that message used to be, it's been cleared away and that's become a door, right? So instead he goes through, Peter has been, Peter has been set aside and he's able to go through a door past the end of the world into a brave new Peter-free world, right? Except that's obviously the wrong interpretation. Why? Remember why? How do we know that that interpretation is wrong? How's it wrong? Yes, Sean, exactly. Sean Smith remembers uh, everybody. The, 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 the path that he walks in is lined with people, and they all have Peter's face. And remember, he does, yeah, Kay and April both remember it also. And he doesn't notice, right? His eyes are filled with tears so that he doesn't even notice that everybody in the crowd that's cheering him has Peter's face, right? Um, He's not stepped beyond. He's not set aside, Peter. Now we have the Peter crowd. It's, but do you see the implication? You see the implication of everybody in the crowd having Peter's face, right? Remember we had the individual versus humanity? Now humanity, the whole crowd, are, they're all Peters, right? Everybody, everybody. Okay, so I guess that's better, right? It's not, 
it's, it's not just me. It's not just that I'm Peter. Everybody's Peter, right? But this Peter-like humanity is applauding him, and that that uh, that scene, that triumphal entry of Ender, that adulation of Ender by the crowd, seems to prefigure the end of the story, right? That he's going to be the savior of humanity. Everyone is going to know his name. Everybody is going to be cheering him. But again, the implication of Peter's face, the implication of that is that that humanity, which is cheering him, is a monster. They're all the same. It's not like that individually each person is a monster. No, no, no. They each have the same face, right? They are that, that collective... Um, that collective uh, um, group. It's one of the, you know, we, you know, I was talking about the collective back in uh, the first class. Um, that scene of the crowds along Ender's path there at the end of chapter 9 um, is the closest we ever get to an actual depiction of something like the human collective, you know, humanity as a whole. And humanity as a whole is given Peter's face. Um, so that, I, I think, is very... Uh, is very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tommy, exactly. Tommy McGuire says, in a sense, by setting up the uh, the IF, they're all man manipulative monsters, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, remember what defines Peter. You know, you know it's, it's, it's easy to be sort of too simplistic in saying, Peter is a monster. Like, you know, monstrosity, thy name is Peter, right? Um, that uh, you know, all that is cruel, uh, you know, all that is sadistic, all that enjoys the pain of others. Um, but remember, it's not just that. What Peter is primarily about, as he will cheerfully tell you, is control. Right? That is what Peter does more than anything else is make other people his tools. And we see his whole plan to become hegemon. You know, to you know, the twelve-year-old who's going to take over the world. Um, his whole plan rests upon him as I was saying last time, using all the rest of humanity as a tool. Um, so, Tommy, it's exactly in that sense that I think that we that, that image, that image of the entirety of humanity wearing Peter's face works. It's not that Peter, it's not that Ender is like Peter, which would mean that the two of them are freaks, right, separated from the rest of humanity. On the one hand, it sort of looks like that's what it means. There are times in which we're certainly invited to see Peter separated from the rest of humanity, Ender separated from the rest of the humanity, and the two of them tied together. But all of humanity wears Peter's face, because all of humanity... Remember, that was the whole premise back in chapters you know, 1 through 6 in, this first, uh, in the first class where we talked about this. All of humanity. What does humanity do? It uses people as tools. It uses individuals as tools for its own preservation. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brandon points out it's interesting that meanwhile Peter is in a sense multiplying uh, back on Earth. Uh, you know, not by his manipulation of people and his control of people, he's uh, um, he's uh, um, making others into sort of extensions of himself. Um, yeah, in a sense, in a sense. Um, Okay, good. Um, all right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Jonathan uh, uh, Spencer says, you know, Ender wins, 
you know, he's 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 beaten the thing, right? He's gone through. He's gone past the end of the world. He's triumphed, um, and that what we see as an immediate result of his triumph, as Jonathan points out here, is um, the monstrous part of humanity winning, you know, or or even like the monstrosity of humanity coming to the surface, right? As you know, in his victory, um, um, and that he is the tool that brings that about, or or at least Jonathan, I, I would, the other thing it potentially hold as, or at least reveals it, right? Though, again, remember, he doesn't know this. Um, anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> slide one. Slide one. Now that we're almost an hour into class. Slide, are, 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 are you ready? Do you think we should start slide one? Are we ready for slide one? Don't worry, I don't have 21 tonight. But I have a lot. Anyway, okay. Um, let's... Uh, Let's move on. I want to look at um, his actions in this new phase. You know, in the you know post, what does Ender look like after the end of the world? You know, what do we see him acting, and how do we look at how do we see him uh, talking? Well, when he becomes a commander, I think one of the most striking things about his early days as a commander is how he treats Bean. Excellent, he says. At least I have one soldier who can figure things out. Ender could see resentment growing in the way the other shoulders shifted their weight and glanced at each other, the way they avoided looking at Bean. Why am I doing this? What does this have to do with being a good commander, making one boy the target of all the others? Just because they did it to me, why should I do it to him? Ender wanted to undo his taunting of the boy, wanted to tell the others that the little one needed their help and friendship more than anyone else. But of course Ender couldn't do that, not on the first day. On the first day, even his mistakes had to look like part of a brilliant plan. Okay. Um, we certainly do see um, uh, this cycle of abuse thing going on, right? That as soon as he is put in power over other people, he treats them as he was treated. We see him explain what he says to Bean and how he says it is almost exactly the way that Ender was treated by Karl Graf on the launch, right? Um, to, to isolate him from the other launchies. Um, so, um, but again, like I said in that first class, the difference is that we see Ender's self-doubt, right? He is self-conscious. He's self-aware. He, you know, the, what makes Ender different? What makes Ender different from Peter? He has the gift of self-loathing, right? It sounds like a horrible thing to say, but he, he, he regrets what he does, right? Um, so we have him, we see him doing this on the one hand, but we also see him questioning it. Um, but the question really lingers, why am I doing this? What does this have to do with being a good commander, making one boy the target of all the others? I don't think those are rhetorical questions. I think those are questions to which we are invited to consider the answers. What does making one boy the target of all the others have to do? with being a good commander. Um, if he's acting like Graf, um, what do we learn from that? What does, what does that show us? What does it teach us about Graf? What does it show us about Ender? Um, how does it help us to understand, um, how does it help us to understand Ender's situation? Um, yeah. Gerald says, Ender learned how effective, uh, how effectively it worked on him, uh, and so he is 
replicating the pattern. Well, Jared, we'll see it kind of gets around to something like that. Um, but that isn't where he um, but that isn't where he starts exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Kay has a really great observation, as usual, Kay. Um, Kay points out that Graf wasn't focused on uniting the school. Remember when, um, um, and I think it was Anderson, was talking about Ender being a disease? No, it wasn't Anderson. It was one of the other nameless uh, uh, military persons <clears throat> saying that Ender is a disease in that launch group. Um, and Graf says, no, no, I was the disease, right? I did this. Um, and you're right, Kay, you do that for Ender's sake. Graf is perfectly willing, as we see, and as becomes more and more dramatized in this, to throw everything under the bus, uh, to throw all the rest of the soldiers, the entire uh, training regimen of the battle school, everything, to throw that all away for the sake of Ender, right? That's all he cares about is Ender. If he, if he succeeds with Ender and everything else goes to hell, that's fine, right? So you're right, that's Graf's priority. That's not what Ender's doing here. Um, Ender is certainly not um, throwing everything um, away, willing to throw the rest of the soldiers away for being. Um, but, um, so I, I, I do agree. I think that that's a significant uh, difference. Look at the, this is uh, later from the, uh, conf the confrontation between Ender and Graf. Um, this is right before he is given his assignment to fight Salamander Army. And again, I want to see, what, did the, what does this stuff reveal about Ender's attitude and about what he thinks is going on here? Um, Graf is asking him about the fantasy game. Tell me why you don't play it. Graf is really upset because he really wanted us to get more scenes so that we in this class could talk about it a lot more. Um, Ender says, because I won. You never win everything in that game. There's always more. I won, insists Ender. Ender, we want you to be as happy as possible, but if you you want to make me the best soldier possible, go down and look at the standings. Look at the all-time standings. So far, you're doing an excellent job with me. Congratulations. Now, when are you going to put me up against a good army? Graf's lips, set lips, turned to a smile, and he shook a little with silent laughter. Um, okay. What do we see about Ender's attitude here. Um, I think it's fascinating. Again, remember we started with Ender happy, with Ender content. At least that's what the teachers said, right? That's what they saw. Um, and Graf saying, oh, now we're going to have to destroy that happiness. Um, but look what we see Ender doing here, right? When he says to Ender, we want you to be as happy as possible. And Ender cuts across him. says, no, you want to make me the best soldier possible. But I don't... That last question, all the way up through, you know, you want to make me the best soldier possible, go down, look at the standings, so far you're doing an excellent job with me, congratulations. That congratulations could be absolutely dripping with sarcasm, right, with irony. Um, uh, he could say that with hatred, right? There could be loathing dripping from that word. But his next question, now when are you going to put me up against a good army? Doesn't sound sarcastic. That is, it sounds kind of willing tool-ish, right? That is to say, as if he is embracing, I want to be the best soldier possible. 
and I recognize that what you want is to make me the best soldier possible, and I am like being complicit with that. Um, I mean, Lee, I agree with you that congratulations sounds sardonic, but again, I have a hard time reconciling it with the next statement. Now, when are you going to put me up against a good army? Um, he does seem to care at this stage now. Again, we get to a different place by the end of chapter 12, but at this point, he seems to believe, first of all, he recognizes they're trying to make me into a good soldier, right? That's what he says. Um, and he seems interested in being um, a good soldier, I think. Um, yeah, April... Um, I like April's interpretation here. April says, I also feel the demand for a good army is a challenge to the teacher's ability to do their jobs. Um, I agree. I agree. There's a kind of rivalry with them, right? Um, there's a sense in which the way I take that, you know, April very much along the lines that you were just suggesting, um, very much a sense in which this sounds like I'm competing with you. Remember, he's still, you know, teachers of the enemy, right? Dink's message. Um, he says, you're the enemy, and I'm winning, right? You never win anything in that game. There's always more, I won. Right? Forget it. I won, right? Um, and then what he seems to be going on to say, and I'm beating you, right? Um, you say you want to make into a, you, you, you want to make me into the best soldier possible. It's almost like he's becoming the best soldier possible, you know, in spite of them, rather than because of them, or, you know, I, 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 there seems to be still this, this kind of... Um, uh, uh, this 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 kind of uh, um, re rebellion, but again, it's, he's not rebelling against their system, against their game. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with K. Um, K. Ben Abraham says. He's keeping Graf out of his inner self, though. I think the question could be read as a defense in that way. Um, yes, 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 I think so. But again, notice that there's still, at the very least, there's the overt gesture towards complacent toolhood, right? You brought me here to make me a tool. You, you know, said as much at the beginning. I can see that you're trying to make me into a tool. Um, fine. I'm going along with this. Again, I think we can see levels of irony there. We can see um, degrees of resistance uh, from Ender there, um, but it's not it's not overt. Um, back to Bean. This is the end of that first practice. Ender reached down and grabbed the front of his uniform and shoved him into the wall. When I say I work a certain way, Bean, then that's the way I work. Bean just smiled. Ender let go of him and walked away. When he got to his room, he laid down on his bed and trembled. What am I doing? My first practice session and I'm already bullying people the way Bonzo did? And Peter, shoving people around, picking on some poor little kid so the others will have somebody they all hate. Sickening. Everything I hated in a commander and I'm doing it. Is it some law of human nature that you inevitably become whatever your first commander was? I can quit right now if that's so. Over and over, he thought of the things he did and said in his first practice with his new army. Why couldn't he talk like he always did in his evening practice group? No authority except excellence. Never had to give orders, just made suggestions. But that wouldn't work, not with an army. 
his informal practice group didn't have to learn to do things together. They didn't have to develop a group feeling. They never had to learn how to hold together and trust each other in battle. They didn't have to respond instantly to commands. Notice Ender's definition of an army here, right? What will make an army? What will make a good army? They will be a good army if they have, if they develop a group feeling to do things together perfectly. If they never have to learn how to hold together, to trust each other in battle. I think of that image of Dragon Army in their final battle um, actually tied together with bean string, right? Um, that's, you know, yeah, they never have to learn to hold together. Um, they, they're, they're not, they, they can move in a tight formation, not only without ever having practiced formation, but without even touching each other because they're tied together, right? It's, it's, it's perfect, right? It's the perfect fruition of Ender's vision here of an army. Um, they have to trust each other in battle. Um, they, ha they, they have to respond instantly to commands. Perfect discipline the commander with perfect authority and the group with a perfect collective uh, perfect collective reactions um, yeah yeah um, a couple of you um, Sean I think before and uh, uh, Luke saying you know, this isn't what his first commander did it's not what his first commander succeeded in doing, but it is what Bonza was attempting to do. That is, remember the you know we're given this very obvious contrast between Bonzo Madrid and Rose the Nose, right? Um, you know the one who is super authoritarian and the other of which is um, is completely lax with no discipline whatsoever. Um, and Ender objects to Bonzo not because he maintains authority or attempts to maintain authority, but because of the ways in which he fails to do that. Right? That's the, those are the criticisms that Ender is always making internally of Bonzo. Right? Um, the thing about not having anybody be naked in front of Petra, he says, Ender says is stupid, right? that it divides the army. Um, he sees ways in which he would more successfully bring people together. The way in which Bonzo refuses to, to use Ender Right, that's not only um, uh, stupid, it's not only foolish in the sense that it's depriving them of a potential weapon, and of course, as it turns out, a pretty good one. But um, uh, but that it's just it's you know like for like for spite for you know some really obscure and perverse kind of honor, um, he's doing this well. Um, uh, so again, what Ender criticizes is how is not the not what Bones was trying to do, but what he, how he goes about doing it in ways which are unsuccessful, right? Um, again, what Ender is regretting here is why is he setting everybody against Bean, right? Um, it would seem, you know, if he is worried, if you know, the anxiety of the commander is that they will hate him, Ender, and not listen to him, right? If he's, if ultimately he as a commander is feeling insecure, he can bolster that, you know, he, he can bolster his position by giving them somebody else to hate, right? Um, Sickening, sickening. Everything I hated in a commander, he says, um, to divide in that way. Um, 
Okay, so yes, they what they're going to do, um, as Sharon Hoff points out, what he wants to do, his vision there of what an army needs to do, are to become buggers, right? That's exactly how the bugger fleet operates, as he will see. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, now, um, my next question. How well is Ender really understanding what the, the teachers and what's going on with them and what they're doing with him? It was the teachers who had done it, Ender said, and it wasn't an accident. Ender realized that now. It was a strategy. Graf had deliberately set him up to be separate from the other boys, made it impossible for him to be close to them. This is still when he's thinking about how he treated Beam. So this is just a little bit after that last passage we were looking at. And he began now to suspect the reasons behind it. It wasn't to unify the rest of the group. In fact, it was divisive. Graf had isolated Ender to make him struggle, to make him prove not that he was competent, but that he was far better than everyone else. That was the only way he could win respect and friendship. It made him a better soldier than he would ever have been otherwise. It also made him lonely, afraid, angry, untrusting. And maybe those traits, too, made him a better soldier. That's what I'm doing to you, Beam. I'm hurting you to make you a better soldier in every way, to sharpen your wit, to intensify your effort, to keep you off balance, never sure what's going to happen next. So you always have to be ready for everything, for anything, ready to improvise, determined to win no matter what. I'm also making you miserable. That's why they brought you to me, Bean, so you could be just like me, so you could grow up to be just like the old man. And me, am I supposed to grow up like Graf? Fat and sour and unfeeling, manipulating the lives of little boys so they turn out factory perfect, generals and admirals ready to lead the fleet in defense of the homeland? You get all the pleasures of the puppeteer until you get a soldier who can do more than anyone else. You can't have that. It spoils the symmetry. You must get him in line, break him down, isolate him, beat him until he gets in line with everyone else. Okay. He was doing well there for a while. Right? Um, Again, my question is, how, 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 what does he understand? How does he understand what the teachers are doing and why? The first paragraph sounds right on, based on what we know, what we've heard from Graf's own um, lips. That's exactly right. Uh, Lee, exactly. Lee Smith says, um, the first two paragraphs, yes, but not the third. Not the third. Exactly. Um, a soldier who can do getting Ender in line beating him down until he gets in line with everyone else is exactly what Graf does not want Ender doesn't fully get it um, he gets that Graf is pushing him he says that he knows he understands that Graf wants Ender to be the best soldier that he can be um, yeah Kay Ben Abraham is pointing to this sort of paradox as like the actual contradiction. Um, on the one hand, making him far better than everyone else, but then saying beat him until he gets into line with everyone else. Um, he's uh, um, he's not he's still not really seeing 
the whole picture. He's still in 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 seeing that his teachers are his enemies. He he gets that idea that he's against the teachers, but he doesn't quite understand what it means. He believes that he's playing a game against the teachers, but he doesn't realize what game he's playing, right? He's playing the wrong game, or he's thinking the rules of the game are different from what they are. Um, and you'll see um, this comes out. Um, uh, this comes out off and on. This is in chapter 12, so this is right after his fight with Bonzo when he's just been given his assignment to fight the two armies at once, right? Everything they can do to beat me, thought Ender. Everything they can think of. Change all the rules. They don't care, just so they beat me. Well, I'm sick of the game. No game is worth Bonzo's blood spinking the water on the bathroom floor. Ice me. Send me home. I don't want to play anymore. And yet... He's on his way to the game room, right? Uh, as before with the fantasy game, he's sounding here a lot like he was right before he went to the room at the end of the world for the last time. Um, and as he is here going to the battle room for the last time, no game is worth this. I don't want to play anymore. Um, but again, notice the fallacy still lurking behind Ender's thinking. They'll do anything they can to beat me. They don't care just so they beat me. He seems to believe the teacher's goal, that what winning looks like from the teacher's point of view is Ender defeated, is Ender beaten down and put into line with everybody else. But of course we know that is exactly the opposite of their point of view, exactly the opposite of their goal. They want to make they want to make him stand out even more. They want to separate him more completely from everyone. They desperately want him to win. Um, they're not changing the rules in order to defeat him. They're changing the rules hoping that he will persevere and learn how to win against impossible odds. Um, so again, we say he doesn't get it. He doesn't get the game that's being played. Um, he's accepting the rules of the game. Remember, that was what the dragon, the dragons drink. Hmm, that's an interesting slip. That's what the giants drink was all about. Dragon army is kind of like the giants drink in some way. Um, that's what the giants drink was all about, right? Um, not accepting the parameters of the game. And we looked at that. He's got to think individually, right? He's got to, uh, to, to, he's got to think outside the box. He's got to go outside the parameters. He's got to do the impossible. Um, and that's where he's put. You know, he's pushed there in the same way um, at the end of his battle school experience here, right? Um, and it was the same thing with uh, the end of the world too, in a sense, right? That uh, picking up the snake and kissing it is going outside the parameters. You have an enemy, right? He who rises up and says, "I am death," right? And then it's going to attack you. Well, what do you do then? You kill it, right? Obviously, um, he had to go outside that those parameters in order to make that work as well to be able to pass through the Looking Glass into the alternate universe. Um, as before, everything seems stack up, stacked up against him, and he hates it but he's still not completely going outside the parameters, right? He says, I don't want to play anymore, but yet he does. Um, 
So why did he play? Why did he go to the battle room this day? He could have just not gone to the battle room. Why did he go? He says to Bean, I don't care about their game anymore, Bean. I'm not going to play it anymore. No more practices, no more battles. They can put their little slips of paper on the floor all they want, but I won't go. I decided that before I went through the door today. That's why I had you go for the gate. I didn't think it would work, but I didn't care. I just wanted to go out in style. I just wanted to go out in style, he says. Um, like in the fantasy game. Like in here in particular, I'm thinking less of the giant's drink and more of the room at the end of the world. He said he wouldn't play anymore, but he is playing, right? He's playing their game, literally, in that moment, playing their game, their fantasy game. Um, and he goes there, and he he goes out. Um, he goes out in style. Um, yeah, Luke says he's not being true. There are more stylish ways to go out. He still wants to win. Yeah, yeah. In the end, he's not just playing. He's playing to win, right? Um, remember his comment at the end of the game, his comment to Major Anderson at the end of that last battle, I beat you again, sir, right? You're not competing against me. Yes, he was. Ender believes that he was. Ender believes that's what it was all about. Um, Ender believes that he has cheated in the last battle and that the teachers may be mad at him for doing what he did. Um, that what he was doing was an act of rebellion, right? This is how you play the game when you don't want to play anymore, right? Forget it. So he does go outside. He, he, he goes outside the parameters. That's how he ends. Like with the giant string, like with the room at the end of the world, like his final battle against the two armies, he, he goes outside the parameters, right? Um, and remember, as with those other cases, they were only assumed parameters, right? Um, that is, the giant says, choose which one. You know, if you choose the right one, you can go to fairyland, right? So if you believe the giant, all you can do is drink one of the two glasses of liquid. Um, but, but that's if you believe the giant, right? Um, so too, tradition in the battle school had said you had to defeat all the enemy soldiers before you could pass through the gate at the end and win the game. Um, but you can ignore that. Um, you can circumvent that and just go straight for victory. And it turns out the game accepted that as victory, right? That was victory. He did win. Um, and he won by breaking the parameters um, of the, by going outside the parameters of the game. And you'll notice as well, by the way, that his last victory was self-sacrificial. He was frozen. Um, he'd almost, he'd never, we'd never seen Ender frozen like that before. Um, uh, but it was self-sacrificial, right? He, uh, he, he was one of the, he was not one of the soldiers who went forward to the gate. He was one of the soldiers that, uh, that stayed back, that launched the other, the, the, uh, the, the, the gate team, uh, over there. Um, I want to, there are two other things I want to talk about. I've got five minutes, so I've got, you know, like enormous amounts of time. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously that's not a problem. Um, but there's one 
passage that I couldn't pass over. I found this passage in some ways one of the most striking, um, one of the most moving little vignettes in the book, actually. I love this moment. Um, and it's the description of Bean when he goes back to his bed the night he says goodbye to Ender. Bean wondered about it as he walked back down the corridor to his own bed. The lights went out just as he reached his bunk. He undressed in darkness, fumbling to put his clothing in a locker he couldn't see. He felt terrible. At first he thought he felt bad because he was afraid of leading an army, but it wasn't true. He knew he'd make a good commander. He felt himself wanting to cry. He hadn't cried since the first few days of homesickness after he got there. He tried to put a name on the feeling that put a lump in his throat and made him sob silently, however much he tried to hold it down. He bit down on his hand to stop the feeling, to replace it with pain. It didn't help. He would never see Ender again. Once he named the feeling, he could control it. He lay back and forced himself to go through the relaxing routine until he didn't feel like crying anymore. Then he dropped off to sleep. His hand was near his mouth. It lay on his pillow hesitantly, as if Bean couldn't decide whether to bite his nails or suck his fingertips. His forehead was creased and furrowed. His breathing was quick and tight. He was a soldier, and if anyone had asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he wouldn't have known what they meant. I think that there's so many things that um, we see in this little description of being, so many things which serve as a kind of um, image of, um, not only an image of Ender, I mean the way in which Bean is, is, is so obviously, even in Ender's own mind, um, you know, a foil for Ender um, from the first moment of his entry, um, that we, we sort of are, are given a different kind of insight into Ender's situation. But, um, you know, of course, the emphasis there at the end, uh, you know, he's not a normal kid, right? This is, he's not a child. This is not how children behave. Um, had you asked him, the question which is like the prototypical question to ask a child, right? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, Ender wouldn't, or get Bean wouldn't even have comprehended that question. What on earth does that mean when I grow up? Um, it's not a question of growing up with him. There's not a question of him being a child. Um, those, all of those categories don't really apply. And yet, um, we've just seen him there with his hands by his mouth in sleep. Um, as if, you know, he doesn't know whether to bite himself or to suck his thumb, right? You know, is he, um, we see at the same time, though he's not a normal child, there is still the child about him. This is, you know, earlier on we get, the, you know, Ender looking at him and realizing that he's still, you know, seeing. This is a seven-year-old I'm looking at, right? You know, you can still see his his round little face and, and you know, he's still he's still a kid, um, a, a, a quite a small kid, Um and yet not a regular child anymore. That impulse towards something like, at the very least, anxiety with biting his nails, um, replacing his sorrow with pain, right? I'm gonna bite myself to inflict pain on myself uh, until the, you know, as, as an alternative to crying, instead of giving way to grief, I'm going to inflict pain on myself. There's something really sort of warped in that, which again I think points to the warping of childhood. You know, of his, uh, um, of his situation. Um, so anyway, I just I I I love this moment, and I think that um, seeing Bean here in this, it, it's of course 
the whole thing is Ender's point of view, right? So we're not being given the, that same external reminder of um, of Ender. That is of how he, you know, the fact that he's still only a child. I mean, he's eleven when he leaves for command school, and um, you know, he's still still prepubescent. He's still losing his baby teeth, presumably, and uh, um, and he is you know now going off to be an admiral, right? He's going straight to command school. Um, so you know the the sight of Bean you know help to kind of contextualize and remind us um, of uh, of Ender's situation. Um, okay. Anyway, but now two other things I wanted to talk about. Okay, actually there are three, but I, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to get to all three. Um, but let's see if I can do at least one, and maybe two. Um, I want to go to the fight with Bonzo um, and look at uh, what happens here. Of course, on the one hand, his fight with Bonzo um, is just like the fight with Stilson. I mean, the parallels are very explicit, right? In, just in case you weren't making that connection yourself, uh, the text gives us lots of help uh, in putting those two things together, the parallel situations with him and his gang, and, of course, the calculation that Ender makes uh, as he did back then. The bathroom wasn't large, and plumbing fixtures protruded everywhere. It had been launched in one piece as a low-orbit satellite, packed full of the water reclamation equipment. It was designed to have no wasted space. It was obvious what their tactics would have to be. Throw the other boy against fixtures until one of them does enough damage that he stops. When Ender saw Bonzo's stance, his heart sank. Bonzo had also taken classes, and probably more recently than Ender. His reach was better, he was stronger, and he was full of hate. He would not be gentle. He will go for my head, thought Ender. He will try above all to damage my brain. And if this fight is long, he's bound to win. His strength can control me. If I'm to walk away from here, I have to win quickly and permanently. He could still feel again the sickening way that Stilson's bones had given way, but this time it will be my body that breaks, unless I can break him first. It's not exactly the same calculation, that is, the terms are not exactly the same, but again, we can see him coming to this, making the same calculation, the, the, you know, Ender doing the calculus of survival here. If I'm going to survive, I have to win, and not just win, not just barely win, I can't win a long, close fight. I have to win suddenly, swiftly, and permanently, or else I'm not going to survive at all. Um, um, you remember the circumstances of the Stilson fight, right? His monitor had just been taken away, and as he's standing there facing Stilson, the first element, the first line of, you know, the, the first um, premise of his line of reasoning and his Stilson calculation was the monitor's gone. They can't see me anymore. That's why they were attacking him, right? Um, I'm on my own. There's nobody else. If I don't protect myself, if I don't take care of this, they're going to they're going to, this is not going to end happily, right? Um, as he says, um, I'm, um, he's got to take care of it for himself. Remember when he has that interview with Graf, when Graf is interrogating him about Stilson in his house um, the next day, um, remember his mom's response. She's horrified, horrified that he would, uh, uh, you know, put Stilson in the hospital after which he dies. You, you can get that reference. Uh, several of you were, um, uh, objecting in that first class because I 
kept referring to him killing Stilson, and uh, it, it just said that he was in the hospital. Well, it was revealed there at the end of Chapter 12 that Stilson also died in the hospital. Um, so he has, in fact, beaten two people to death, um, two other kids to death by the end of Chapter 12. Um, remember, his mom is horrified and says, "You should have, you should have called for a teacher. Why didn't you, you know, why didn't you go get help? Why didn't you get a teacher to intervene?" Right? If you were being bullied, obviously the thing to do is to run for help. Right? But he didn't run for help. Um, and remember, Graf was pleased. Right? He thought he, he, Ender thought that he was in trouble when Graf was coming to talk to him about Stilson. Um, but in fact, Graf was delighted, not by what he did, but for the reasons that he did it. Um, and um, uh, yes, and Luke, you're right. According to Ender's mom, uh, Graf should have given Ender a medal because he did, in fact, kill Stilson. Yes, you're right. Um, we can see, of course, that in the battle school, Graf is working to make this calculation correct. Ender says, look, the only thing, the only way I can survive... Because remember at the time, when we were talking about the Stilson scene back in the first class, there were several of you who were objecting. Several of you who were saying... Okay, it's one thing to say, I've got to mess this guy up so badly they stop coming after me. You could say, like, that's really fallacious reasoning, man. I mean, like, there are other options here. Um, this is not, in fact, the only way out of this situation. Well, yeah, if you're thinking like Ender's mom, right, sure, you can go tattle, right? That's a way out of this situation. You can seek protection from others. That would be another way out of this protection, out of the situation. Ender's calculations do seem to be based on the premise. Nobody is going to help me. There is no other resource possible that is available to me other than my own resources. Given that, given the fact that I am alone to deal with this with no outside help, how can I survive? What will I have to do to survive? That's the premise of his reasoning. And one can say it was not true at the time. He did have other options, and, and he did. He could have asked for help from a teacher. Presumably, a teacher at the school would have intervened and prevented Stilson and his gang from beating Ender to a pulp. Depending, I guess, how exactly how deep the prejudice against thirds goes in that society. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they would have broken up the fight um, had, uh, had they, in fact, been, um, been, alar been alerted. Graf against stiff resistance even from his superiors who are coming to threaten him with court-martial and uh, execution. Uh, is a pretty, uh, uh, a capital court-martial. Um, he is going to be on trial for his life. Graf will be on trial for his own life uh, if Ender is harmed in this situation. So Graf is putting everything on the line in order to make that initial premise of Ender's calculations true. When Ender Wigan holds our fleets in his control, when he must make the decisions that bring us victory or destruction, will there be military police to come save him if things get out of hand? I fail to see the connection, obviously, but the connection is there. Ender Wigan must believe that no matter what happens, no adult will ever, ever step in to help him in any way. He must believe to the core of his soul that he can only do what he and the other children work out for themselves. If he does not believe that, then he will never reach the peak of his abilities. He will never become the perfect tool of humanity. Um, okay. 
Um, so again, he, he wants to institutionalize that assumption that Ender made at the beginning of the book. Um, he has to believe that he is alone. He has to be isolated. He has to be acting completely as an individual, separate from the entire rest of humanity, in order for him to become the perfect tool that humanity needs to save humanity. Right? So we see the irony here. Right? I mean, we can see the way in which this in which this is working. Look at Ender's conclusion after the fight. There was no doubt now in Ender's mind. There was no help for him. Whatever he faced, now and forever, no one would save him from it. And you can see Graf in the background. Good job, Ender! You know, like, there's Graf high-fiving people, right? Ender got it. He has learned the lesson. Graf has won! Hooray! There was no help for him. Whatever he faced, now and forever, no one would save him from it. Peter might be scum, but Peter had been right always right. The power to cause pain is the only power that matters. The power to kill and destroy. Because if you can't kill, then you are always subject to those who can. And nothing and no one will ever save you. Well, that's depressing. Um, uh, I got a really interesting email this afternoon from Kristen Hauk. Kristen was pointing out um, uh, she was telling me she was reading uh, this... Oh, Kristen, you're here. Cool. Um, well, Kristen, you were telling me earlier today that you were reading this in the Kindle version. Now, I'm not a Kindle reader myself, but Kristen was telling me that when you read the Kindle version, you can turn on um, like uh, comments. You can see uh, passages in the book that other people have like favorited, that they've that they've emphasized, that they've chosen as you know passages that they that they really liked. Um, and uh, she said as she was reading through. This passage, this paragraph, was the most liked paragraph, the most underlined paragraph in the entire Kindle edition, that 4,000 people had emphasized this passage. Um, and um, it's certainly a striking moment, but uh, um, Kristen was sort of confessing to me that she was finding that a little bit creepy and depressing, um, that this uh, uh, really uh, sort of nihilistic view um, that... Uh, you know, this, what seems to be Ender's submission to monstrosity, right? Um, yeah, I'm like Peter. Peter's got it right, right? In fact, the only way to survive is to be like Peter. Because you see, that now becomes explicitly connected to this. And it is indeed the logical extension of Colonel Graf's argument, right? If the only thing that can make him the perfect tool for humanity is to isolate him from humanity. By definition, that means dehumanizing him. In other words, in order to become the perfect tool for humanity, you have to become a monster. You have to become separate from the rest of humanity. You have to become different, but not just different. You have to become ruthless. You have to be willing to kill and destroy. You have to be uh, wanting to be uh, not to be subject to those who can kill and destroy the, the whole, this whole, you know, this, the desire, his desire for self-preservation, which turns into, you know, this, I will sort of accept making, except, of course, we know he doesn't accept this. We see him weeping, uh, you know, in the next scene. Um, again, 
Peter is okay with this, Ender's not okay with this. As always, we see Ender still um, being uh, uh, clinging, in a sense, to humanity, that is, to being human. Um, Peter is already a monster, as we know. He's the prototypical monster in this story. Um, but he's also, as we've seen, the most individual. He is the only one who has successfully separated himself from humanity. The one who steps aside, the only one who turns the tables and is the individual using the collective humanity as a tool for his ends instead of submitting themselves to be used as tools. Um, Peter is the only non-tool in the whole story. The only person who will not be a tool for anyone else. Therefore, there seems to be a link, at least in this part of the story here, we're invited to connect being an individual with being a monster. Being separate from the whole, being separate from humanity, is in a sense, by, in some sense, by definition, monstrous. Look at what the, uh, uh, this is Major Imbu and Colonel Anderson talking, now, now Colonel, instead of Major Anderson, uh, talking at the very end of chapter 12. The kid is scary. Ender Wigan isn't a killer, this is Major Imbu defending him. He just wins, thoroughly. If anybody's going to be, no wait, I think that's Anderson actually. Um, if anybody's going to be scared, let it be the buggers. Makes you almost feel sorry for them, knowing Ender's co going to be coming after them. The only one I feel sorry for is Ender, but not sorry enough to suggest they ought to let up on it. I just got access to the material that Graf's been getting all this time, about fleet movements, that sort of thing. I used to sleep easy at night. Anderson now sees that he now sees the end towards which Graf was moving, right? Um, he was questioning Graf's means before. Now that he sees the ends, that Graf was aiming at, he is now okay with Graf's means, much more okay with Graf's means. But again, notice, why is it, why do the teacher, his enemies, why are the teachers making him a monster? Why are they wanting to push him to be this? Because they're afraid of monsters, right? They're going to make him into a monster that's so scary, it almost makes you feel sorry for the buggers, for the monsters, knowing that Ender's going to be coming after them. They're, going to, they're making the perfect monster, the monster to trump their monsters. Um, there's, a, there's a way in which... Um, there's a way in which we see... a parallel, I think... It's not like a, you know, I wouldn't push the parallel too far, but a parallel between the commanders of, um, of the battle school and Rose the Nose. Why does Rose the Nose sleep in with the rest of the army? He doesn't sleep in his commander's quarters. Remember why? Rose the Nose, right? The <laughs> Be yeah, because he's afraid of the dark because he's afraid of the dark, because he cries in terror. If it, you know, he swaggers and he um, tries to set himself up as great and as superior because he's Jewish, right? Um, uh, which 
fact, he attempts to amplify, right? Both through his emphasizing his Jewishness, right? This makes me a great general. You know, we get the story about the sort of the tradition of Jewish generals, um, uh, apparently, and even the the way that he has that like grossly exaggerated uh, genitalia on his desk. Which I, I'm presuming that the animated penis that Rose the Nose has put on his desk is a circumcised penis. Again, there's like a sense in which he's again amplifying his Jewishness, right? Um, trying to build up who he is and what he. But but he's afraid, right? In the end, we see it's insecurity, terrible insecurity, on the part of Rose the Nose, and that he he can't even sleep by himself because he's so scared. Major Anderson used to sleep well, too, but he doesn't anymore. Why? Because he's afraid of monsters. And so they're going to send... Um, they're going to they're, they're gonna create their own monster who's even more scary than those other... He's so scary that he's going to make the other monsters afraid, right? Um, so, again, you have... Um, they want a monster. It's not that him becoming Peter, him becoming a monster, is sort of an unfortunate side effect, right? That, okay, in order to sharpen him, you know, to become the best soldier possible, you know, like, he's going to have to do some monstrous things, he's going to have to be... And, you know, that's sort of lamentable, but it's kind of necessary. No, it's the goal. In one sense, it's that's exactly the goal, um, to break him down, to separate him, to isolate him, to dehumanize him. That is what... That's not only the means to make him into the perfect tool, that's the kind of tool they need. Or at least that they believe they need. Um, yes, and you're right, Sean, even his name, the nickname he's adopted for himself, Rose the Nose, uh, is a reference to his Jewishness as well. You're right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, all right. I said I had three things left. And now I have two things left. I'll do one of those two things, and I'll save the other one for next time. Um, graph. Remember at the beginning, back in our first class, Graph was sort of put forward at the beginning of the book as like the representative of humanity. Remember we talked that Graph was like the spokesperson for the collective. Um, Ender was going to be the tool. Um, his job was to become the tool. Again, Graph totally open about this. Um, and... He, Graf, was the spokesperson of humanity, but not just the spokesperson of humanity. He was acting on the part of humanity, right? He was um, the embodiment of the human collective manipulating, um, producing. Remember how, you know, humanity produces an individual of genius, right? He was humanity producing. He was the means by which humanity was producing that individual of genius um, who was what they needed uh, at that moment. Um, but notice in this section, we're beginning to see a wider and wider breach. Graph is not just humanity. Um, there's a real gap there. We see on the one hand, um, Graph's bitterness. Uh, this is Anderson speaking to Graph. Colonel, sir, I admit I was on you. I admit I was a pain in the ass, but it worked. Everything worked, just like you wanted it to. The last few weeks, Ender's even been been happy, says Graf. Content. He's doing well. His mind is keen. His play is excellent. Young as he is, we've never had a boy better prepared for command. Usually they go at eleven, but at nine and a half he's top flight. 
Well, yes, for a few minutes there it actually occurred to me to wonder what kind of a man would heal a broken child of some of his hurt just so he could throw him back into battle again. A little private moral dilemma. Please overlook it. I was tired. Saving the world, remember, says Anderson. We see Graf aware of his own monstrosity. We see this is one of several moments where we see Graf um, expressing remorse. Graf is one of the only other characters, other than Ender, who has these moments. Um, uh, Graf, 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 too, has the gift of self-loathing here. Um, that is, so Graf is a monster, but wait a second, being a monster means being separated from humanity, like, by definition, to be a monster is not to be human, right? Those two things are opposite. Um, Graf sees himself, what he's doing to Ender, as monstrous. That is, Graf is not humanity, Graf also is a tool, right? His job as a tool is to create Ender, the tool, right? To sharpen Ender. Um, he, is, he is the whetstone that is supposed to sharpen the blade that is Ender, but a whetstone is a tool too, right? He wrecks, so even though we see Graf acting, and of course it's another, it's another split, it's another breach between Graf and humanity as a whole. Um, uh, this is him talking to, uh, uh, yeah, this is him talking to Anderson again. It's the beginning of Chapter 11. Um, this is when they're about to institute the ridiculous set of, uh, of battles for, um, for Dragon Army. We told the computer, this is Anderson, that our highest priority was having the subject remain useful after the training program. The subject, right? Well, as long as he's useful says Graf. Look, Colonel Graf, you're the one who made me prepare this over my protests, if you'll remember. I know, you're right, I shouldn't burden you with my conscience, but my eagerness to sacrifice little children in order to save mankind is wearing thin. The Polemark has been to see the hegemon. It seems Russian intelligence is concerned that some of the active citizens on the nets are already figuring out how America ought to use the IF to destroy the Warsaw Pact as soon as the buggers are destroyed. Seems premature. It seems insane. Free speech is one thing, but to jeopardize the league over nationalistic rivalries? And it's for people like that, short-sighted, suicidal people, that were pushing Ender to the edge of human endurance. I think you underestimate Ender. But I fear that I also underestimate the stupidity of the rest of mankind. Are we absolutely sure that we ought to win this war? Is humanity worth saving? He's asking. Um... Sean asks, is he talking about Demosthenes? Sean, yeah, I mean, we don't have, it doesn't explicitly say, um, but I, I have to believe that that's in fact what we see. Um, either he's talking about Demosthenes or he's talking about people who are, you know, following Demosthenes and responding to Demosthenes. Um, so yes, it is Peter and Valentine. So of course we see that, you know, that, uh, there's a marvelous dramatic irony in, in that sentence. Um, it's for people like that, that we're pushing Ender to the edge of human existence. It's for people like his brother and sister that we're pushing Ender to the edge of human <laughs> endurance. The terrible irony of that sentence, right? Because, of course, Ender's doing it for Valentine, right? He's doing it to save 
uh, he's never met all of humanity, but he, he quite liked to save Valentine from being. Remember, he has those images of Valentine's head being blown up, like the Marines in the in the in the bugger videos, right? And he doesn't want to. He wants to keep the the buggers from coming down and 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 killing Valentine, so he's willing to become a tool to sacrifice himself for the higher end and all that, right? So yeah, it's for the sake of it's for the sake of those uh, of people like that that enters that they're pushing under the edge of human existence, or the of human endurance. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but again, notice, here we have Graf not only being differentiated from humanity, not only being isolated himself, and we see, you know, how much resistance he's getting from Anderson, from, uh, from General Pace, uh, you know, who comes up, though, was the one who threatens him with a capital court-martial at the end. Um, he, Graf, um, is isolated from them. He is alone. We see how alone Graf is. Nobody else agrees with Graf, but Graf is right. Graf succeeds. Graf is an effective tool. Why is he an effective tool? Because he's isolated. Because he's an individual. Because he is a monster. Um, uh, Lee uh, Smith sent me an email earlier in the week, um, which I also thought was very interesting. She was pointing to the, uh, the, the interesting point that Colonel Graf um, of Colonel Graf's weight change over the course of the book. Uh, Lee was making the point that it's kind of an unusual thing. You don't usually see a character getting fat and getting thin again over the course of a book. You know, you just have fat, fat characters and you have, you have thin characters, but um, uh, you know, th th that kind of dynamic weight loss over the course of a, of a book is a little bit unusual. Um, and with Graf, it's, our attention is really drawn to it. Remember when Ender is in his office um, there in the later, I think it's in chapter twelve, and uh, and he sees Graf is is really fat. His you know his belly is spilling over either arm of the chair that he's sitting in. And Ender has him. He's like, I don't remember him being fat at all um, when we first came up here. That is, Ender is seeing uh, the change in Graf. So again, the, the, it's it's like he's he has become he has become fattened on the flesh of the small children that he has devoured right um it, it's it does i i do read that um Lee, as i think you were also suggesting in your email um as a kind of a a, a a metaphor for his for his monstrosity certainly um his own sort of perception of his uh of his monstrosity um sharon hoff says graf also just wins thoroughly um yes wins thoroughly at what he does um but again he asks in the end is it worth it is it worth it um is humanity worth saving? Are we absolutely sure that we ought to win this war? He says, oh, it's not treason, it's just dark comedy, right? Uh, you know, black comedy. Well, okay. Um, but remember the crowds of people with Peter's face, right? And of course, it's literally Peter that he's talking, that is making him doubt whether mankind is worth saving. Um, um, and if not Peter, one of Peter's many tools. Um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, um, all right, I should stop, I'm not going to keep you forever like I did last time, um, oh yeah, boy, I'm like 20 minutes shorter than last class, I'm only, I've only kept you like 20 minutes longer than I should have instead of like 45 minutes, uh, so that's fine, um, 
the last thing I wanted to talk about, which I'm not going to talk about, but I'll introduce it so we can talk about it next time because it's going to be, I was going to use it as a transition into next week's material anyway. Um, that is, remember at the beginning we were looking at um, the assumptions Ender was making about what defines a good army and how a good army has to be. And Sharon Hoff, you were saying they have to become buggers, right? They have to think in completely uniformly, have perfect discipline, um, submit absolutely to the authority of their commander, um, be in perfect unison like he sees the buggers being. I want to come back to that. Um, that's the last point that I wanted to make that I don't have time for. Um, look at his, think about that observation, think about his study of the bugger um, wars in the video room, and think about his tactics in the battle room. Um, you know, think about, uh, you know, his toon leaders, um, uh, you know, uh, Crazy Tom and Hot Soup, and think about, think about Bean. Um, what do we, what do we see? What do we see about Ender and tactics, and how do we, how, how do those things connect with all these other ideas that we're, um, that we're, that we're looking at? So, okay. So that's where we'll go next time. But I'll let you go now. Um, our last section of the book. Um, in theory, we're supposed to finish discussing the book next time. It is a hugely long uh, section. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest we're probably not going to finish that whole thing next time. Um, but I certainly, uh, if you don't have a chance to finish the whole rest of the book for next time, um, I may end up stopping the our discussion at the end of the war. So when the game is finally finished, before the whole aftermath, we so we, we, we may not get a chance to talk about the aftermath stuff, you know, the post-war parts of the book. Um, but I am going to definitely push to get all the way through the game, um, the final game uh, next time. So um, we will have more time to talk about it. This is, you know, the ne next class isn't the last week of this class. We have two more sessions after that. The fifth one um, is the one that I'm hoping was hoping to use primarily as a Q&A session. I do hope that you know, we'll, we'll probably end up talking about the very end of the book, and then I hope to take some questions also. And then the uh, in the final week, I want to talk about the movie um, and uh, the adaptation of the uh, of the story. So we'll talk about. It. We, you still have time. If you haven't seen the film yet. You still have time. Uh, for so that will be what three weeks uh, from now, and that will then be our last class on Ender's Game before we move on to whatever else our voters are uh, are have uh, um, selected for us for next time. So anyway, thanks everybody for another lively discussion. You guys are making some great points. I'm only sorry that uh, I didn't have a chance to uh, to read all of your comments and to to, to respond to all of them, but I uh, I'm grateful for. Uh, all of your active contributions here tonight. So thanks very much, everybody. Good night.